about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. first of two Bible readings. Um, So Isaiah 28, it's on page 701. So we've got two Bible readings tonight, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Um, And then Roger will be preaching from the second passage, but this reading from Isaiah is quoted in 1 Corinthians, so we're thinking about how they're linked. Um, Isaiah was a prophet speaking to Israel, God's people, around 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah's message isn't a happy one. Chapter 28 opens with woe. It's a message of condemnation with a glimmer of hope. Condemnation for the priests and prophets who had been teaching God's people but were sounding like drunkards speaking gibberish. The glimmer of hope is that despite their failings, God will still save his people. So please read with me um, from verse 9. Whom is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it is... Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away, morning after morning, By day and by night it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. 
The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Hi everyone, our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, from verses 1 to 25. If you're reading along the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1137. That's 1137. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you, unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sound, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played, unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, though men of strange tongues, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But but, But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
Prophecy, however, is for believers, not unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Thanks, team. Hi, folks. My name's Roger. I'm uh, one of the ministers here and have the privilege of teaching from 1 Corinthians 14 tonight. Uh, let me sort myself out in so many ways. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word and we pray especially tonight, having read uh, about desiring spiritual gifts, that you would change our hearts to desire the things that you desire, that you might remake us more and more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, my name's Roger. I have a lovely wife called Leah and three children, Josh, who's 10, turning 11, Maddie, who's in year two, and Georgia, who's in kindy. I am glad it's the end of the term. We've kind of stumbled over the finish line, if you like. Uh, the process going from being a child to being an adult is a curious one. I'm not sure whether you remember or want to remember uh, how that was for you, uh, but I'm going to show you a picture in a moment uh, about the tooth fairy. Tooth fairy's quite, you know, well-loved in our house, exchanging pieces of, what is that stuff? China? Enamel? Whatever it is, whatever it is that teeth are made of, for money. It's great. And when the kids are little, it's a lovely little game that you play. Right? It's like Santa. It's a game that we play. It, we tell them it's the truth. And when they grow up, they realise it's just a game. It's not real. It's just a fun thing that we do. Here's the sign that I found on my son's bedroom door. <laughs> He's not a great speller. In case you can't read it, it says, Tooth Fari. Give me the money, please. And there's an arrow, and he's blue-tacked the tooth to the sign. It's a little bit graphic. <laughs> In case you're interested, by the way, Josh, um, the way he got this one out was with a red skin that his friend gave him, and they said that if you just chew the red skin a bit, then put it on the tooth, you can use the red skin to lever it off, with the bonus that it looks like a piece of your jawbone has come out. Anyhow... The point is, which you will have noticed in our passage this evening, you can come to church like a baby or you can come to church like a grown-up. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, stop being babies in the way that you think about coming to church. Now, it's a good night to talk about babies here, isn't it? Because Grace came to church in a dress from the 1800s, no less. And if you're here for the baptism tonight, I just want to say a special welcome. We love having visitors. Uh, and what we're going to do is look at this passage from 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, modern-day Greece. And so we're reading someone else's mail. To give you a bit of insight into where we're coming from, I'll just give you a, a cook's tour of our last little bit of 1 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, one of these ones, it'd be great to check that I'm not making up stories. 
And let me read to you from the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. Whenever you write a letter to someone, the opening gives away the main things that you're concerned about, unless you're trying to be subtle, and Paul, not subtle. Uh, In his opening paragraph, Paul talks about all the things that he's going to address through the course of the letter. This is a church that he loves, that he knows, that they've been writing back and forth, and there are some things that he wants to address. Let me read, you can follow on, it's on page 1128, 1128, I'll just give you time to flick to that, tell you something about the numbers, 11 is a prime number, 28 is a perfect number, that means its factors add up to it, page 1128, here we go. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things to note. Firstly, this church belongs to God. Verse 2, this church belongs to God, the church of God. Secondly, its identity shapes its practice, just like you. Your identity shapes your practice. Who you are and what you do are inexorably linked. Paul says that they've been made holy and called to be holy. There in verse 2. So the church is meant to be pure like God because that's who they've been called to be. In the paragraph from 4 to 9, it's like a bullet point list like the opening of a good essay that Paul's going to go on and address some things. He says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus, for in Jesus you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. So you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He'll keep you strong to the end so you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God draws you into fellowship with your son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. So the notes that he hit is knowledge, speaking, spiritual gifts. And in the chapters that have preceded, there's been a lot of talk about how the Corinthians speak and who they listen to, about the things that they know. Uh, In this slide, you'll see that in chapter 8, Paul draws a contrast between knowledge and love. He says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's a question about what you do with the knowledge you have. You can know lots of things and be a bit brutal with them. Maybe you've met doctors. Hi, I love doctors. But you know, they're, they're the perfect example of just truth tellers for your good, sometimes blunter than we would like, but they're doing it in love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is saying to this church, with what you know about God, don't just think you're awesome. Remember the God who loves you shapes what you do with your knowledge. So care for each other, not just care for yourselves. Uh, In the next slide, you'll see what happens when Paul thinks about his own life. He says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. That's a massive call for anyone to say, isn't it? What should a church be like? It should be a bunch of people who are all trying to imitate Jesus. Not by pulling up stumps and going to Israel and walking around and trying to change bread into lots of bread. 
No, but in the same character of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they'll be saved. Follow my example. This is the sort of church that you're going to be if you know the love of God, if you understand your calling. And when you come to church, it should be useful. See here in chapter 11, verse 17, it says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. Hands up if you've been in a meeting like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is talking specifically about church. Uh, there was no church in Corinth. There wasn't a beautiful building designed like this. It was just someone's house that they met in. When they'd meet, it could be chaos. People of different social strata getting together. They had no history to shape their practice by and it just got a bit messy. The rich would care for themselves before they cared for the poor because that was what was normal in society. And it didn't look like a community shaped by the love of God. Your meetings, the assumption in this is, when you come to church, it's meant to be a positive experience. If that hasn't happened to you in the past, I'm sorry, but I hope that tonight is a change in direction. This meeting is meant to do you good. Less from me to you and more from you to each other. More of that in a minute. Uh, in chapter 12, Paul says that everyone who's a Christian, everyone who has the Spirit of God, has something to give for the common good. Now, I'm not sure what you think about having the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a person who's turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, I know that I'm in trouble before God as a judge because I've lived in his world and ignored him. Please forgive me and help me to live for you. I put my life in your hands, just like you gave up yours for me. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit and it's given, but it's not for you. I mean, there are wonderful benefits. God is with you. It's a deposit of what's to come. Uh, it means that you can pray that prayer that Romans 8 describes of, ah, I don't know what to pray, but God, you know. And the Spirit is giving you gifts for the common good. As a Christian, you are energised to serve, just like Jesus. So as we get closer to this bit in Corinthians that we're talking to, you're thinking about what should church be like in chapters 12, 13, 14, make a sandwich, where in chapters 12 and 14, Paul talks about gifts, and in chapter 13, the way that you should use them. So you can see at the end of chapter 12, there's this, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I'll show you the most excellent way. Then he talks about love for a whole chapter, because that's the most excellent way, use your gifts in love. And then he gets back on his gift horse, so to speak. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual things, especially the gift of prophecy, which leads us to where we are tonight. So here's the uh, structure of where we're going. Desiring spiritual things. Which one's better? The problem with tongues, mindful tongues, and think like a grown-up. We're going to spend most of the time on the fourth one, so let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 14 together. Now, if this all seems a bit strange to you, if you're visiting and you're a person who thinks, what are these people on about? What is prophecy? What is tongues? I'm hoping that by the end of this, it'll be clear. And you'll be able to say, along with Paul at the end of this little section, Wow, I can see how God is at work among these people. That's the goal of church, that anyone who's visiting is able to say, wow, 
These people are shaped by who God is and what he's done. So we're glad you're here. Here's what chapter 14 is on about. Firstly, which one is better, prophecy or tongues? And here's the short answer. Tongues gets a thumbs up. Prophecy gets two very enthusiastic thumbs up. Fine family fun. So uh, the reason is because tongues are good for you, but prophecy is good for everyone. And here's the proof. Uh, 14.1 says, follow the way of love, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. By the way, occasionally at church we do this thing where we say, that word in the English, the Greek means something a bit different. We want you to trust your Bible. The word that's translated spiritual gifts there really means spiritual things. Eagerly desire things from the Spirit or desire the Spirit to be at work in you. For a Christian, it's pretty normal. You've been changed by God, so let him do his work in you. Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, the problem is we don't really know exactly what Paul means there. Now, we do know some things. Already tonight, we've heard from Isaiah. We'll turn back to him in a few minutes. But Isaiah is a good example of a prophet. A prophet always speaks on behalf of God. In the old versions of the Bible, would say, Thus saith the Lord. Well, the Lord says, and passes on a message. That's prophecy. Some of the prophets are what we call ecstatic prophets, not that they're particularly happy necessarily, but that they speak immediately what God has said to them. Some of the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel especially, Jeremiah, they recast the same message a few different times. So they've stopped and thought, they've written it down. They've reshaped it according to the audience and the time. It's not instantaneous prophecy, but they're still both prophecy. As well as that, sometimes prophecy is looking back at what has happened and saying, God is like this, and so you should respond in this way. And sometimes it's saying, this is going to happen. They're all prophecy. So what does it mean that we should desire that? Verse 2 helps us out a little bit. Anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak uh, to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. There's a great 3.7 there, isn't there? Strengthening, encouragement, comfort. Whatever prophecy includes, as a Christian, it's meant to make you stronger It's meant to encourage you, and it's meant to give you comfort. Now, depending on the type of week or month or year that you're having and have had, you will need different parts of those at different times. Sometimes you'll just need someone to put their arm around you and comfort you, to say, God is for you, and he loves you deeply, despite what is going on in your life, Make it look to the contrary. That's the great thing about Christianity being historical, that you can always say, God loves you enough to die for you. Be not afraid. The Lord is on your side. Sometimes you do need a word of encouragement. Hey, get your act together. Come on, this is who we are. We can do this together. And sometimes you need a word of strengthening. 
something that gives you the ability to do something that you haven't done. That's Matt's specialty, by the way. He's great at strengthening people in the service of God. Prophecy involves encouragement, strengthening, and comfort. Whatever a tongue is, is different to that. <coughs> Excuse me. What is a tongue? Verse 4. Uh, he who speaks in a tongue edifies, that just word means builds up, edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Notice the difference? To put it bluntly, tongues are selfish, prophecy is generous. It's not quite as brutal as that, but the benefit of a tongue is that you're encouraged. It's about between you and God, and prophecy is where you say something for the benefit of others. You can see the difference. Uh, and if you've been tagging along and getting the point that church is about doing good for others, then it makes sense that prophecy is better. The little instruction there in verse 5, I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesied. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be built up. Pretty sure that Paul doesn't mean you're a better person. I think the greater word there just means more useful. It's very obvious from the rest of the New Testament that everyone who's a Christian has equal status, whether you're slave or free, male, female, young, old, whatever, equal in Christ, but given different gifts for different purposes, and the greatness is measured in how useful you are to other people, not just how great you are at speaking to yourself. So what's the problem with tongues, verses 6 to 12? The problem with tongues is, well, we've kind of already mentioned it, it doesn't do us any good. If you're speaking in a foreign language, and that's what tongues are, it's a gift from God where you speak in a foreign language, either one that you've never been taught, so I just start randomly spurting out Serbian, that's not very useful to anyone here unless there's someone who speaks Serbian here. Either you've been trained in it or God's given the gift of suddenly understanding Serbian. Now, this sounds a bit weird to us. I have a science degree from Sydney University and I'm a white, middle-class, Anglican, empirical rationalist on the whole. This sounds a bit weird to me. It's outside of my personal experience. But I know there are people in this room who speak in tongues. Uh, when I was at uni, there was a girl in my small group from the EU, the Christian group there, spoke in tongues and for months in second year, I prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give me the gift of tongues. And in his wisdom, God said no. I think because I just wanted the thing that she had. It was just about me being selfish. So, if you're a person who speaks in tongues, one very enthusiastic thumb up. But in church, the only time for it is if there's someone to interpret. And we'll talk more about that next week in the second half of the chapter where you can see the heading says, Orderly Worship. So the problem with tongues is you can't really understand what's happening. And so his conclusion at the end of that little chapter in verses six, that little section in 6 to 12 is, so since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. So when you're praying for God to be at work in you, what do you pray? You pray, Father, please help me build up my brothers and sisters that they would be the people you've called them to be. That's the prayer we pray when we know the love of God, when we see the example of Jesus, that's how we pray. Okay, so prophecy is better than tongues, 
The problem with tongues is that no one can understand it unless there's an interpreter. Third section, mindful tongues. Now, this is a bit of a go at people who think that spirituality is about being caught up in the moment and kind of having your mind in neutral, just being carried along by something that's really beautiful. Now, I need to say two things very clearly. Firstly, there's nothing wrong with being caught up in a moment. I love being caught up in moments. When I finally went to a U2 concert after 20 years of failing to go and regretting it immediately, it was great. I was carried along in the moment, not stuck in a moment. It was wonderful. And thank you. Uh, and, and it was just astonishing after years and years of pining and wanting and desiring and knowing all those words and just being there was inexpressibly great. And I'm sorry I'm so old that I had to use you two as an example, but there you go. Uh, so on one hand, there's nothing wrong with being caught up in something beautiful. God makes beautiful things and gives us gifts to play beautifully. And there's nothing wrong with the beautiful things. But as Christians, God has also given you a mind to know him. And so what's better than being carried along with, as my dad would say, your mind in neutral? Is your mind in neutral? Just wake up to yourself. What's better than being carried along is being mindful of what you are saying and singing and doing. Here's what the text says. Have a look from 13 to 19. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Just being carried along. So what shall I do? Verse 15. I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving? Since he doesn't know what you're saying. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Paul's saying, it's great for you to have a moment, but when you come to church, just stop thinking about yourself. Think about what's useful for others. And then in a great Pauline backhander, this is my favourite verse in the chapter, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Kapow! You think you're spiritual? <laughs> but he says, in verse 19, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Put your trust in Jesus. More useful than a 10,000 word essay. Put your trust in Jesus. Paul says, say five intelligible words rather than 10,000 blah, 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 blah. And then, in verses 20 to 25, the last section that we're going to look at, Paul says, stop thinking like babies. It's a bit of a harsh word. He opens it, of course, brothers, as he's reminding them he's in the same boat as them, but he says, stop thinking like children. Now, I don't know how much time you've spent with kids lately. I know that some people here have got uh, young relations. Babies are pathetic. Now, I love babies. I've had three. Well, I haven't had three, but you know, there's been three in my family. And I love them dearly. But a child sits in a nappy having soiled themselves 
and says, up, up. They are completely dependent, completely helpless to feed or bathe or clothe themselves. They need the strength of someone greater than them to do what they really need. Now, don't hear me being negative about babies. It's a beautiful thing, but do you see the picture here? Stop being pathetic. Stop being so self-centred. That's the problem with kids, right? They don't know what it's like to live in the real world. The process of becoming an adult is realising you're not the centre of everything. That's why being a teenager is hard, right? Because you realise, ah, no! For 15 years I've been the centre of everything and now there's other people who have expectations of me. Ah! And really, I still think the same way. I just want to come to church and have you look after me. Isn't that right, since I'm the neediest? Since I'm actually, well, I'm at the centre of things in my world. That's what a child thinks like. But someone who's an adult realises that you have responsibilities beyond yourself as being a person who functions in a community and a society. Paul says, verse 20, stop thinking like children. He's thinking about how you use your spiritual gifts. You're thinking about spirituality. He says, in regard to evil, you can be babies. And this is a good word for us, right? In the inner west in Sydney. In regard to evil, you're allowed to be a baby. You don't have to indulge in every form of worldliness just to make the people around you think that Christians are cool. Christians will never be cool. Sorry, Jesus, not cool. Followers of Jesus, also not cool. We don't do Jesus any favours by trying to engage in evil, in sinfulness, in an attempt to win people to him. In regard to evil, be babies, Paul says. That's fine. It's good for us to be innocent. And by the way, innocent is different to naive. We want to teach people about what the world is really like. I want to teach my kids about porn, about what sex really is, about the yearning for freedom that drugs bring. I want to teach them about those realities and what people are going to say, but I also want them to be innocent. In regard to evil, be infants, Paul says, but in your thinking, be adults. And this is my question for you. When you think about how, to, how the Spirit is at work in you, where are you at in your development? Are you thinking like a baby? Are you in your teenage years? Are you thinking like an adult? I don't need you to answer out loud. You don't need to write it on a communication card. But this is what God is asking us to consider this evening. Now, Paul immediately quotes from the Old Testament at this point, which I think is a bit odd. He quotes that bit that Nikki read out, through men of strange tongues and through lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people. Even then, they won't listen to me. Now, I'm going to duck into Isaiah for about 90 seconds. And if you want to come with me, it'll be fun. If you don't, just tune out for 90 seconds and we'll be back in a minute, all right? Flick back to Isaiah 28. Because in Isaiah 28, the bit that Nikki read out, it's on page 701, 701. In Isaiah 28, you get this great little Hebrew joke, essentially. It's not that funny, but it's a bit funny. And it's one of the... In Isaiah 28, 
on 701, it's one of those little times you can use the tiny words down the bottom of your page. So in the bit that's quoted in verse 10, which says, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, little here, little there, it doesn't make any sense. It's kind of nonsense speak, and the Hebrew is even more nonsensical. Can you see it down the bottom of the page there? It says, sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. The prophets who are meant to be speaking the very words of God to point Israel to God are speaking blah, 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 blah. And God says, that is judgment on you. It's judgment on you. That even the ones who are meant to be pointing you to God are speaking gibberish. Okay, we're done in Isaiah 28. Come back to 1 Corinthians. The speaking of gibberish in church is a judgment. Don't speak like a baby in church. Don't speak blah, 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 blah. Because the sign of tongues is a sign of God's judgment for outsiders. It's a sign that you don't belong here. That's what it says there in verse 22. Tongues are a sign not for believers but unbelievers. It's not a good sign. It's a sign that says you're not welcome here. You're not part of this. You're outside of knowing God. But prophecy is for believers because you know God. So Paul's saying, when the whole church comes together, what should you do? Verse 23, have a look. When the whole church comes together, everyone speaks in tongues and some who don't understand or some unbelievers come in, why don't they say, you're out of your mind? Now, I've got a little game we can play. All right, I want you to get your phone out and find something in a foreign language that you can read out. We're going to do this, all right? You've got about 20 seconds to get your phone out, and I want you to read out something in a foreign language. Use Google Translate if you need to. Come on, I know you've got one. I'm going to let you speak for five seconds in a foreign language. Some of you don't need to get your phones out because you're multilingual, and I'm jealous. Okay, five more seconds to get yourself ready. All right, ready, set, go. Okay, see how encouraging that was for you? See how useful that was for you in growing in your faith? When someone walks in the door and we're doing that, they think we're all crazy. That's Paul's point. If that's what church is like, you should all stop acting like babies and grow up. But if an unbeliever, verse 24, or someone who doesn't understand comes in while everyone's prophesying, speaking words of comfort, encouragement and strengthening, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare. He will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, that's not my experience of church in the graveyard most weeks. But it does happen. There are people among us and people who've gone out from us who have walked through those doors not knowing God and who have experienced Christians speaking words of comfort, encouragement, and strengthening to each other. They have seen the love of God in action, in word and deed. And they have realized that they are sinners 
that they know the love of God and they've fallen at his feet and realize that God is really here, present by his spirit in you, in us. This is our This is our vision as a church, to see people captivated by Jesus, transformed by him, renewed in his image. This is what we want church to be every week, that people come in and realise that God is here, not in a kind of spooky sense, it's good for us to go into the house of the Lord. No, no, but God can see you speaking, sorry, Visitors can see you speaking the words of God into each other's lives. As we sing and as we pray, as you hear God's word explained, you realize who God is. And if you're in a position where you've not realized that God loves you and gave his son as a sacrifice for you, maybe tonight's the night to to turn to him in faith. God is the one who welcomes those who've been far off, who knows us even better than we know ourselves, and loves us still. It's good when we are with him because he is for us. And church is a visible expression of that story, of every believer's story that once you were far off and now you're in the family. And so when we come together, it's not just about ourselves individually. It's about living out who we are. So how are you going to use your gifts, is the question. I'm not sure what your spiritual gifts are, and it's difficult for me to see from here. I don't have an ability just to kind of read auras, because I don't think that's a thing. So what will it look like for us to be using our spiritual gifts that God has given us in church? Let me give you a couple of, well, just thoughts that I've accrued. I think whatever you do with your spiritual gift, it will be done in love and not drawing attention to yourself. The people most in danger of this, people who stand up here. Preachers need to take care that they do not make themselves out to be more spiritual, more amusing, more the centre of everything. The goal of preaching the word of God is to point people to Jesus The goal of tonight is for you to walk away forgetting me and knowing Jesus better. Preachers, watch out, and those in training, prepare your hearts to keep Jesus at the centre. The Spirit is given for the common good. I want to say I love music here at Church in the Graveyard, and the people who play have gifts from God and are using them. By the way, if you have musical gifts and you're not using them, come and tell us. So you can be part of the team. It's great. But church music is weird because through your whole musical training, you've been told to be a performer and how to perform. And what we do is say, stop being a performer. It's not about you. It's about people thinking about Jesus, using their minds and spirits to sing. And so it's like a role reversal. Musos need to be careful that it's not all about them. We're all singing together and they're no more special than you. Because we all have the same spirit. We're all trying to sing to each other and to God. Musos, use your gifts for the common good. That's why also we don't have face-meltingly good guitar solos in church. Because it doesn't really help you. I mean, Jamie can do it and it's awesome. 
but it's not, he doesn't do it during church because it's not for the common good. It's a beautiful example. All right, if you're a kid's leader, if you're using your gift of massive patience and learning how to be a disciplinarian and teaching to serve in kids' ministry, you need to be careful that it doesn't become all about you because kids will worship you because you're fun and awesome and not their parent. Those who serve in kids' ministry, we love you. I love you. Thank you for sharing with me in the task of growing my kids to know Jesus. But you've got to be careful that it doesn't become all about you. You use your gifts to serve these kids and point them to Jesus and not to you. I love that we have great suppers at church here. It's one of the great features of our church, don't you think? Because we live in Foodie Central, our suppers are awesome. But if you're the sort of person who cares so much about supper that you don't actually end up talking to anyone and you spend half of church washing up because you've got to get the washing up done, it's suddenly not become about building each other up and just giving us an avenue to have conversations. You're worshipping supper, not Jesus. In the same way, if you've got the gift of administration, and by the way, in chapter 12, the gift of administration comes before tongues in the list. If you've got the gift of administration, we love you. You get stuff done and it's awesome. But you know, there's a way to do administration that's just brutal and leaves people hating church and thinking that it's a robot. That's no good. We want to get stuff done, but we want to do it in a way that pastorally cares for people and thinks about who they are before we ask them to do something. And if we've wronged you in this way, I want to publicly apologise. Sometimes the robot gets it wrong. We are the robot. Whatever gift you have, Whatever God has made you like, it's a gift. Whatever you're like, it's not an accident. And it's not over yet. You won't be the same person now as in a couple of years. You can try new stuff. You might have the gift of ukulele. You might have the gift of preaching and teaching. You might have the It's not over yet. We're going to have the ministry fair in a couple of months asking people to think about how they're going to serve next year. Why don't you try something new and ask to be trained up? This is the sort of church that we want to be, where we put the Spirit of God at work in us so that whatever we're doing, people say, wow, God is at work among you in the way you lovingly speak and lovingly treat each other. I'm going to pray for us in a minute. Uh, But in the pause before that, I'd like you to consider what you've heard from God's Word tonight and what it might mean for you to put some of these things into practice. The big instruction is at the start of chapter 14. Eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Now, I think you'll only do that if you already know what it's like to have been loved by God. You can't churn up in yourself a desire for something without something greater than that, empowering it. And the thing that empowers our love for others is that we've been loved by God. That's why chapter 14 comes after chapter 13. Because we've seen faith and hope and love, faith in Jesus, hope that we'll see God face to face. And we've seen the love of God in Jesus. Let me pray for Heavenly Father, we long to be judged by you as not being kids in the way that we use our spiritual gifts, not being babies. We long to be mature uh, like your son, Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Father, we thank you for the great diversity in your church, that you've called us all from different places and different backgrounds, that you've given us different gifts, but all for the common good. And we earnestly pray, Lord, that you'd help us to desire spiritual things, that we might excel at building one another up, that we might more and more in our character and actions and thoughts and words be like the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you're going to get that job done eventually by your spirit at work in us. And in the meantime, we pray that you'd energise us, help us to know when it is the right time to speak words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of strengthening to each other. Give us these gifts, we pray, Lord, that we might be the people you call us to be. Thank you, Father, you have loved us first. We pray this listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.